All right, everyone. Welcome back to our second episode in our Stonehenge, Stonehenge, pardon me, series. Today, we are joined by Simon Banton, who, do you want to go ahead and introduce yourself, Simon? Hi, yeah. Uh, well, I'm Simon, and uh, my background is in physics and astronomy, um, with an interest in archaeology that goes back sort of 25, 30 years. And uh, I moved to Wiltshire for a couple of reasons. One was the really dark skies that we've got around here compared to some other parts in the UK. And the other reason was I've become fascinated with Stonehenge. And if you're interested in the sky, archaeology and astronomy, then there's really no better place to go. Um, so I've lived here for over 15 years now, and uh, I was lucky enough to work at Stonehenge for the guys who look after it for six years between 2010 and 2016, um, showing people around. And that's developed into a kind of a, a career in sort of giving lecture tours and talks about the archaeoastronomy of the monument and particularly about the archaeology of the landscape that surrounds the monument as well. So I'm a bit of a Stonehenge geek, which is kind of nice to be. You sound like the perfect person to be interviewing, so thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> so at, before we get into it, do you want to just, you know, we recorded an interview, not an interview, pardon me, uh, an episode on kind of the general history of the monument, but is there anything you think that is often not included in those kind of typical histories that you think ought to be that you think we should all know before we jump into some of the more uh, conspiracy theory yeah. elements? Yeah, definitely. Everybody focuses on the big pile of rocks in the field. Yeah, and for 400, 500 years since people have been paying attention to Stonehenge in a kind of a scientific way, everybody's been looking in at the rocks instead of looking out at the landscape. And when we look at the landscape itself, it's clear that there's been human activity in that landscape going back 10,000 years at least. Only about 50 yards, 75 yards from the monument itself in what was the old visitor center car park, when they're expanding that in the 1960s, they found three enormous timber post holes in a line, about five yards apart from each other. And when they excavated them and got down to the bottom, they found some pine charcoal in the bottom of one of them. So they radiocarbon dated it, and it came back to 7,900 BC. Wow. Which means, gosh. That means that hunters and gatherers are creating monuments in this landscape nearly 10,000 years ago. And in the last 10 years, we've begin to, begun to understand where these people were living, what they were doing, and just how they viewed the landscape as special 5,000 years before anything was really built in the center of where Stonehenge is now. So we've got to kind of double our time horizon when we're thinking about the Stonehenge landscape. Right. Yeah. When we were doing, when I was doing the research for this, that was the dates that they gave were definitely all surrounding the actual monument itself mm -hmm. and when it was built and whatnot. But that's really interesting that they're, you know, I'm glad that we seem to be expanding our horizons at least. And hopefully that makes its way into the 
popular culture surrounding Stonehenge, at least so that, you know, people like Claire and I start to get that information a bit, a bit more easily than perhaps we are now. And would you say that interest in Stonehenge is increasing? Has it kind of stayed the same throughout the entire time that you've been um, working there or being interested in it? Is it something that's always been popular? Is it, what would you say in terms of its popularity? Stonehenge is one of those things that really deserves the label iconic. Uh, mm -hmm. If you draw sort of two uprights and one across and say to somebody just as a cartoon, what's that? They'll say Stonehenge. Yeah, it's instantly recognizable in the same way that the pyramids of Giza are instantly recognizable. And if you go back through history to around about the 12th century AD, so the mid 1130s, that's when we start to see the first mentions of Stonehenge cropping up. And I think that through the Middle Ages, ages, sort of 15th century, we started to get drawings of it occurring. And then 16th, 17th century, people started to pay a little bit of attention to trying to think about what it might mean. By the time you get to the 18th century, then there's a full-on warp stone engine. We need to look at this. And I don't think that interest has ever waned since. Uh, uh, obviously, the pandemic in the last couple of years has really reduced visitor numbers. But I think the people who go there, they kind of fall into one of two camps. They're either people who go, tick, seen it. And there's people who go, oh, my God, I'm at Stonehenge. Yeah. And it's the people who went, oh, my God, I'm at Stonehenge when I worked there. that were fun to talk to. But it was fun to try and get the people who went, tick, seen it, to see it with different eyes as well. Because a lot of people think, oh, a big bunch of rocks in a field, what's so special about that? But if you can turn them around into appreciating just why it's special, just why it's incredible, then that's kind of a big win in my book. I don't think interest in Stonehenge will ever, ever wane, because we'll never explain it fully. And in your words, what, you know, if someone was to go and they were just going to, like you said, tick the box that they'd seen it, what does make it so special and, and interesting in your opinion? Okay. If you look at the biggest stone at Stonehenge, the really tall one that's standing up there, it's half of the tallest trilithon set of three that ever used to stand there. Um, it's a massive rock. Yeah, it's getting on sort of total length for about 30 feet long. It weighs about 45 tons. That's fairly impressive. Okay. Yeah, yeah that's massive. Yeah. Yeah. But then you've got to think about, okay, so when they were looking for these rocks out in the landscape to bring them 25 miles to Stonehenge, 15 miles to Stonehenge, when they found that one, it was a big unshaped boulder just lying in the grass on top of the chalk and it probably weighed 55 tons and a knobbly boulder job one is get that out of the ground and what i used to challenge people was how do you think you could get that out of the ground in the first place you've got ropes you've got levers and you've got people and it weighs more than a fully loaded semi-articulated truck yeah, and then they sort of go, ah, uh, okay, I kind of see what you mean. Yeah. The engineering aspects of it, I, th I think, are the things that are compelling if you can get people to think about what it actually represents.
Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's so, so I've never actually been there, unfortunately, and every I'd love to go, but every person who has been that I've met is always astounded by how big they actually are. I think it's easy to lose sight of that in the photos. You know, mm -hmm. people are kind of standing away from it and the perspective makes it seem like they're not quite so massive. You're but I hear that right. over and over again. They're, they're so, you can't imagine how large they actually are in person. Yeah, I've got a little model about eight inches tall of one of the sets of three of the outer circle that's cast in resin by a friend of mine. And he said, do you want this on a plinth? And I said, yeah, yeah. What do you want on the little label? I said, okay, how about it's not as big as I thought it was? Because <laughs> that's what I used to. <laughs> that's great. Yeah, and you're absolutely right. When you see it from a distance, if you're coming over the hill on the road and you see it in the distance, it looks enormous because you can see the people around it who look tiny. Yeah? When you get up to it on the visitor path, all of a sudden, the perspective gets lost because there's nothing of a human scale in the middle of the monument and it kind of shrinks. And then when you actually go into the circle itself, if you go for one of the open events like the solstices or the equinoxes, um, or you do for one of the after hours or before hours visits, and you stand in front of one of those rocks and you just lean back and look up at one of the capstones is 17 tons and it's sitting up there 26 yeah. foot in the air and you think uh okay it's big again now yeah yeah so, <laughs> and you know on the topic of you know we're talking about the solstice and stuff i'm just interested to get into just a little bit before we jump into the theories what kind of your work entails what does you know this okay. marriage of your different interests kind of what does that result in and, and what do you look at Okay, well, everybody goes to Stonehenge for the summer solstice on June the 21st, longest day, and they stand in the middle and they look outwards over the heelstone, which is an unshaped natural boulder about 250 feet away that's roughly in the direction of where the sun rises on the longest day of the year. And they stand there and they wait to watch the sun rise out of the tip of the heel stone because that's what they all think Stonehenge is about. And mm -hmm. okay, I've, I've been more than 20 times now, I think, and I've been rained on 15. Um, I've seen it totally clear two or three times. Um, and there's 40,000 people in the way. Yeah. Great. That's what everyone thinks Stonehenge is about. But if you stand instead next to the heelstone on the dawn of the summer solstice, and ideally a day or so either side when there's nobody in the middle making a big crowd, so it's clear, and you wait for sunrise, as the sun creeps up above the horizon, the heelstone casts a shadow, and that shadow runs up the slope to the monument and it goes between the uprights of the entranceway, the deliberate entranceway through the circle. And the four and a half thousand years ago, before the earth tilt changed slightly, the tip of that shadow lands exactly on the center of the altar stone. And I think that the summer solstice aspects of Stonehenge are all to do with that shadow of the heel stone penetrating the circle. And if you like, symbolically fertilizing the earth goddess view of mm -hmm. stuff. It's an idea from a friend of mine called Terence Meaden, who's been researching stone circles for over 50 years now. Um, and 
I tried to help him confirm his thoughts about it and got some good shots of this happening. And so I said, hey, Terry, look, it works. This, this summer solstice shadow idea that you came up with works. Uh, and he was pleased. And then I started reading some random other books about stuff just because I've got a wide variety of interests. And I found a book by Gerald Gardner, who was the man who invented Wicker in the 1950s. There's a reinvention of witchcraft. Yeah? And tucked away at the bottom of one of the pages in a throwaway paragraph, he says, oh, I went to talk to the, the hedge witches around Wiltshire and Stonehenge. And they said, really, you should stand by the heelstone and watch the shadow go into the centre of the monument. I thought, oh, that must be where Terry got the idea from. And I said to Terry, is that where you got the idea from? He'd never heard of it before. So what we've got here is two independent discoveries. One's a report from mm -hmm. Gerald Gardner, from people who kept the old traditions. And Terry, who came up with this off his own bat, suggesting that that light and shadow effect is what's about the summer solstice rather than standing in the middle looking outwards. And I think that holds a lot of water and it's an interesting idea. Now, archeologists say correctly that Stonehenge is designed for the winter solstice sunset, the opposite end of the year. And you stand by the heelstone again at the top of the avenue and you watch the sun set into the very center of the monument between the uprights of what would have been the tallest trilithon before it, half of it collapsed. And that marks the end of the year. You've got this pause where you take a breath and then you can tell that the sun is returning. So that's a good excuse for a party because the days are going to get longer. It's really going to get warm again. The sun's not going to disappear. For some reason, humanity is terrified of the sun disappearing. It's in all our myths and legends. Very yeah. interesting. Yeah. And that's what the archaeologists and most archaeoastronomers think is the main focus of the monument. It's looking to the monitoring the sun turning around at the bottom of the year and being reborn. So those are the main axes. But everyone forgets to talk about the other two bits of the solstices and that's the winter sunrise and the summer sunset and there's actually a sight line through the monument that goes from the winter sunrise to the summer sunset if you know where to stand in the right place you can see this clear sight line through the monument that's targeted exactly on the position where the sun rose four and a half thousand years ago uh, and in the opposite direction, the same sight line is targeted exactly where it's set at summer solstice four and a half thousand years wow. ago. Wow. And the interesting thing about it is those two lines intersect over the centre of the altar stone. Uh, so the altar stone's a key stone in that monument, and it's exactly in the right place and exactly at the right angle to capture these key turning points of the year. And that's a complete description in my mind for why Stonehenge is designed the, the, the way it is. It's anchoring that intangible sky down to a human level so that the ultimately intangible thing is something that we can comprehend and celebrate and mark and track. So there you go, in a nutshell. There's loads of other stuff too, but that's probably enough for one. Oh more. no, I'm, I'm sure there is. It's as some, It was something that I was researching that you know, I don't really know much about, and there was just so much information out there. It was hard to know where to look and what was. Yeah, there's a lot know. of misinformation out there yeah. as well, too. Yeah. yeah. So to 
kind of go through all of that and figure out what what of this is you know credible and based in actual mm-hmm. observations and you know what is uh, not so credible and based in observations which is kind of I guess where these conspiracy theories come from so oh yeah I'd yeah. love to talk I, I'd love to talk about the the article you wrote kind of was an April Fool's joke <laughs> I think you said about the idea that there's these kind of underground tunnels and whatnot underneath. Yeah, um, do you want yeah. to tell us a little bit about that? And yeah, where a, that a, came friend, from? A, a friend of mine runs a, a, a tour company which does special access tours. And I've, I've written a few blog articles for him for his website in the past. And about five years ago, he said, hey, Simon, could you come up with an April Fool about Stonehenge for us just to drive a bit of traffic? And I thought, oh, yeah, all right, I'll give it a go. And because I'm interested in the archaeology of it as well, and I, I pay a lot of re- uh, interest to the latest archaeological research, I was aware of a lot of geophysics traces that existed. There's been lots of geophysics below ground remote sensing carried out at Stonehenge using various technologies over the years. And there's one really good image that shows a weird pattern in the ground. Uh, I'll tell you what the weird pattern actually amounts to at the end so i stuck this geophysics plot up and i put this headline sort of underground chambers found at stonehenge latest geophysics results show blah 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 blah, blah. and created this whole article that said that was underground chambers under stonehenge that they'd been discovered in the 1950s and while everyone else was watching them re-erecting parts of the stone which was ostensibly what the dig was for really they were investigating these underground chambers and eventually they filled them in with concrete to prevent them collapsing and that every year they pump in smoke to check that there were no leaks or anything uh, and there were some corroborative photographs um and and it was great. It, it went nicely and people looked at it and went, ha, ha, ha. And other people looked at it and went, oh, there's underground chambers under Stonehenge. Mm-hmm. Now, the geophysics plot itself shows a hexagon pattern around the outside of the monument. So the six blobs, very regularly spaced, and they're linked together by traces in the geophysics, yeah, in black and white. And what it actually is, is the magnetometry detected the electricity junction boxes for the old floodlight system that used to be at Stonehenge. No way. Oh, my goodness. But it was a perfect image to say, underground chambers, and here's the antechamber, and here's a photograph of somebody going in there, and all the rest of it. Now, the funny thing about that article is it was a one-shot deal. But, I keep seeing it crop up in my social media feed at times other than April Fools. Mm-hmm. Uh, recently, within about the last three weeks. Um, oh, wow, a, really? A, a fairly sensible sort of uh, glacial geomorphologist, um, geologist who's got an interest in Stonehenge and the provenancing of where the blue stones come from and how they came mm-hmm. to Stonehenge. Uh, put a link to it and said, hey, have you seen this? And serious researchers started going and critiquing the story. Said, well, I don't see the, there's the evidence here of the geophysics for this sort of thing. And they'd all completely missed that it was dated 1st of April. And they completely missed that the name of the lead researcher was an anagram of the French for April Fool. And they were taking it completely seriously. So the thing I love about that is 
it just shows that you can put anything out there about Stonehenge and people want to believe that it is exceptional and that it is inexplicable and that it's beyond human capability. And all of those things are not true. It's clearly not beyond human capability. There it is. We built it. Yeah. It clearly is more than exceptional, uh, but it's not unexplainable. You've just got to apply some proper right. critical thinking to it. Right. And yeah, I think that, like you said, it really goes to show how you nowadays, especially, you know, with the conspiracies that we talk about across various disciplines, a lot of it does originate from, you know, a random blog post here or there mm -hmm. that might have been written in seriousness or not. And yep. some of them just gain traction and people want to, they really yeah. like to buy yeah. into this. It's extraordinary. Look, look at this, you know, supernatural yeah. effect that's yeah. going on and whatnot. And, yeah. you know, I think with some of the more, there's a few conspiracies with Stonehenge, right? That kind of tie into this whole Druid slash there's mm -hmm. some sort of energy centers or something or ley lines, yeah. something like this around the monument, right? Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's, okay, let, let's talk about Druids. Because yes, lots of people that I know are Druids and they are lovely people, first off. I've got to say that. And their beliefs are sincerely held. And it's entirely possible, in fact, probable, that some of the beliefs that they hold about reverence for nature, reverence for the ancestors, marking the turning of the seasons, are probably commonly held with people back in the Neolithic or people back in the Iron Age. Yeah, it's a, it's a human sort of thing. But the whole thing with Druids and Stonehenge starts in the 17th century uh, in the historical record. And it was one guy, basically, John Aubrey, an antiquary, and he'd be looking at Stonehenge and he thought, you know what? I don't think this is Roman. I think it's earlier than the Romans. And between him and a chap called William Stukeley, who came along nearly a century later, who had the same sort of idea, and Stukeley built on Aubrey's thoughts. He said, it's not Roman, it's pre-Roman. It must be a temple because it's so elaborate and such a work that it must have had a priesthood as well. Temples need a priesthood. And the only priesthood that was known of that existed in pre-Roman Britain were the Druids. And we know about them because Caesar wrote about them in his Gallic Wars. You know, and essentially, right. he was bigging up the Druids as being a terrifying <laughs> political force uh, because they were causing him lots of trouble in Gaul. And he talked about the wicker men and the twitching entrails and the human sacrifice and all that to make them terrifying. So Stukeley popularized the idea that Stonehenge was a Druid built monument. He even wrote a book called Stonehenge, a temple restored to the British Druids. And he styled himself as a Druid. He was a Church of England minister, but he turned himself <laughs> into a Druid. It was kind of weird. Yeah, but there we go. And ever since Stukeley did that, it's been Druids all the way down. Yeah? Stonehenge is a Druidy monument, but the idea is only about 400 years old. Now, Stukeley tied it uh, back to the Celtic priesthood, the Iron Age priesthood that was pre-Roman. 
Um, now, there's no evidence that that priesthood used Stonehenge. We find very few Iron Age finds actually at the monument. And in any event, if you could, there's nothing to tie that priesthood back a further 2,000 years into the past right. to the time when Stonehenge is built. So you've got the people who built it, you've got the Iron Age priesthood called Druids, and then you've got the modern Druid movement, which kind of starts in the 18th century um, with the ancient order of Druids founded around about 1771. Uh, I sometimes call them the comparatively ancient order of Druids, because <laughs> they're not really all that old. Yeah. No. <laughs> but they started out like friendly societies, kind of like a, a sort of the Quakers idea, a mutual mm -hmm. aid, hospital, hospitality, um, night hospitaler sort of approach. Right. And it gradually morphed into a more esoteric um, ancient tradition. And over the course of the intervening sort of 300 years, it absolutely exploded. And there are now hundreds of different druid orders the ancient orders still come to stonehenge and they still have ceremonies yeah and it's all very nice and great but the idea that it's built by druids is just it's just wrong whatever the people who built it four and a half thousand years ago called themselves almost certainly it wasn't druid you know? right and the rituals and ceremonies that are carried out today don't have a direct lineage back even to the Celtic Iron Age priesthood, let alone back the further 2,000 years. It doesn't stop people thinking it, doesn't stop people no, of thinking not. it. Yeah, and it's great and it's a wonderful spectacle and they carry out some fantastic ceremonies in the centre. The best one, to my mind, is the battle between the Oak and the Holly Kings, which happen twice a year at the turning of the solstices. So you've got the Oak King who's in charge in the run up to summer, and then they have a battle and the Holly King takes over for the falling half of the year to winter, where they have a battle again, the Oak King wins and takes over for the rising half of the year. And it's a fantastic piece of theater that's carried out ceremonially. And I've seen it done with swords with wooden staffs with water pistols and with rubber ducks <laughs> kid you not stretchy chickens rubber chickens in the monument oh. but it's symbolism that's the thing yeah and it's the reenactment so that, that that's sounds kind like of, a lot of fun almost to it, go, it to really go and watch and take part or yeah that yeah. sounds sounds like yeah. it sounds like fun <laughs> the one thing that stonehenge doesn't have is any kind of book of ceremonies because there's no okay. documentation for it right so that means that people can bring to it what they want and they can invent like their rubber own chickens. Ceremony. like rubber chickens uh, why not yeah. yeah it's fine yeah um it's still a battle it's it's mm -hmm. still the symbolism what matters is the symbolism that goes behind it and so long as it's harmless uh and it's actually an an evocation of uh, a bigger idea which is something that's really happening. The sun is changing from rising in power to falling in power. Then there's nothing wrong with it. And as I say, individually, druids, great. Lovely people. Lots of my friends are druids. Um, get two different druid orders in the same place at the same time, and you've got to fight. Because they don't necessarily all get on with each other. 
Yeah, see eye to eye on everything. There you go. It's a bit people's front of Judea sort of thing. <laughs> I, I love that movie. That's it's one good, of it? my favorite movies of all time. Um, and I, so I watched the video that you directed me towards about this whole kind of Disney strangeness. That was a weird one. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I barely understood what was going on, to be honest with you. I was just, I, it was all going over my head. Yeah, we were really hoping a... you could explain this one for us, please. <laughs> <laughs> okay, right. There was, it's a bit involved. Um, as a background, there was a, a campaigner about political issues who had decided that he was going to march on Westminster, the, the home of the UK Parliament, um, to bring these issues to the government yeah, and accuse... Right certain people of certain things, okay? That's the background to it. En route, he happened to come past Stonehenge. Yeah? Now, near Stonehenge, there are lots of people who spend time camping out on the nearby trackways, yeah? And some of them are interested in conspiracy theories, and a lot of them are quite resentful of the way the authorities have shrink-trapped Stonehenge into a pay-to-see-it sort of bubble with a visitor centre and all the rest of it. So they're a little antagonistic towards the organisation that looks after the stones. At the time that he arrived and spent a few days camping on the byways nearby, there was a project underway to demolish the old visitor centre, which was right next to the monument, and move it a mile and a half down the road to make a big new modern visitor centre with an exhibition space and all the rest of it. Something that Stonehenge had been crying out for for generations. It needed better than a shack at the side of the road, which is what it had to that point. Unfortunately, somebody got it into their head that what was happening was that Stonehenge was being gifted to the Disney Corporation and the stones were going to be lifted up and there was a concrete put underneath them that belonged to Disney. And as a result, the stones would then be sitting on Disney property and it would be a Disneylanded experience. And that was the, the sort of the, the story, the rumour that was going around. It was being handed over from the British state to the Disney Corporation. Disney. Disney, yeah. And the yeah. whole reason for this belief was that one of the contractors for the new business center project was a firm called Norman Disney Young. Wow. And so the trucks were going by with that on the side and people went, oh, it's been given to Disney. And it, it turned into a whole big thing for about three weeks. And then it disappeared except it lives on forever on the internet yeah that's quite course, a leap yeah. isn't it like yeah <laughs> it, it it's if you're if you're looking for something to rail against there's plenty of stuff to get cross about yeah and the trouble and the the wonderful thing and the trouble about the internet is that once something's there it's kind of there forever yeah, even if the original disappears, it's been replicated so many times around that it's always there in the background. 
And, uh, and that's what happened in that particular case. And I still have people say, well, it belongs to Disney now, doesn't it? I go, well, let me tell you why that people thought that. But it was a kind of quite a bizarre thing. There was there was people jumping the fences with placards and banners and, and all sorts for the space of one particularly long, hot weekend that summer. It's very strange. Wow. I, yeah. That is one of the strange ones, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Is... Are there any other really strange ones that you've come across or you've had visitors come and, and ask you about it? Have any really stuck out for you in terms of some assumptions or just or some conspiracy theories people tend to buy into well there's one thing that, that that does get brought up quite a lot that i saw a lot when i was up there i'm standing by the stones a lot of the days of the year in all weathers explaining them to visitors and that was people coming up with dowsing crystals or divining rods and tracing the energy paths around the monument now there is a large body of thought that says that the earth is crisscrossed by energy currents, these telluric earth energy um, uh, forces, and that significant ancient monuments are, if you like, acupuncture points into the earth at key focuses of these intersections, these nexuses of these energy points. And I'd quite often see people come up with a, you know, a crystal on a chain and they'd be dowsing as they went around the visitor path. And uh, I used to ask them, could you, when you've gone round, come back and tell me what you actually found? Because I'm, I'm interested and I've got a science background and there's, there's something going on here. Dowsing is something that's a, a, a cross-cultural phenomenon. It's not just strange people in England that do this. Yeah? Right, no, of course. Yeah. And what was strange about it was that people were oddly consistent in what they said they felt as they walked around the monument. And they'd come back and they'd say, well, I can feel that the energy is flowing in here and it's flowing out there and that it changes when the sun comes behind a cloud and shines on the stones. And it's kind of not going through the gaps. It's going half through a stone and half not through a stone. But these things were reasonably consistent amongst people. And there was a strange additional consistency was that at the point where we used to stand on the path as members of staff which is as close as you can get to the monument and it's the best place to be to keep a good eye out on what's going on and to intercept people who want to jump over the rope and run into the middle and get naked or whatever else yeah. they want to do <laughs> we used to stand on this one particular point and people used to say and i don't know why you stand here because this is a really bad space to stand here it doesn't feel like there's any energy at all. It feels like it was described to me as a precipice or a void or sort of an absence, a sort of, you know, an emptiness at this spot. I, I thought that's really strange that there's this consistency amongst people telling me this stuff. Yeah. And I thought there has to be somewhere, there's got to be a diagram that somebody's drawn of the energy paths at Stonehenge that all these people have looked at and it's informed how they've thought. So they're subconsciously translating that map that they've seen into what they're feeling as they go around the place. That was how I rationalised it. 
until we have to dig the path up for the new visitor center to relay the path. And underneath the spot where we stand is a massive copper cable that used to feed the floodlights. Just oh my gosh, the floodlights the, again. Yeah, it, it runs from the junction box on one side of the path underneath where we stood and goes on to that hexagon ring. And I thought, oh, well, that's the explanation. Then there's, and then I thought again, hang on, how are people with crystals on chains or a pair of dowsing rods detecting mm. an underground copper cable? And how is that having this effect on it? And I try to keep a reasonably open mind about this sort of stuff without mm. buying into it. And one thing kept popping into my mind, and that was that X-rays have always existed, but before we had photographic paper, we had no idea of their existence. So maybe, maybe there's something in the human makeup, being a human being and having lived on this planet for two, five million years, however long it is, we've been in touch with nature and we've got the machinery somehow to detect something and we just don't have the instrumentality that allows the way we do science to prove that the humans have got this ability because certainly right. water dowsing is used successfully with a better than random hit rate for finding wells and water pipes my my local yeah. water engineer for the council uses a dowsing rod he says it's more reliable and it's electronic stuff yeah and so it's an interesting yeah, thing to, to think it, about. For sure. Is there something in there? Um, and I don't suspect we'll ever know the answer because I, I guess it's one of these things that as soon as you try to apply rational science to it, it just disappears. Yeah? But <laughs> ley lines of energy paths, it's a 1960s idea. Uh, dreamt of essentially in this country by a man called John Michel in a book called The New View Over Atlantis. And he was building on an earlier idea by a man called Alfred Watkins in the 1920s about long distance alignments. And there are definitely long distance alignments between things. Yeah, you can look at them and do statistical analysis on them. Whether there are snaky energy paths that people can detect themselves is an entirely subjective thing. And yeah. so it's very hard to get a handle on the likelihood or otherwise of it. But it doesn't stop people believing it. And uh, no, there was, course. as they say, a weird consistency that I noticed that gave me pause oh, for interesting. thought. Yeah. yeah. You know, one of the theories that we came across that I think probably has far less to it is this strange one that Stonehenge was built like in the 1950s or something that oh, when they were... Great. Yeah, yeah that... They that seemed to start, uh, the first record I saw, that was actually on a Russian website. Um, oh, okay. Uh, but it was a long... <laughs> do stuff like that sometimes. But, it, but as far as I could tell from the Google Translate version of it, it wasn't a piece of deliberate misinformation. It was somebody who had this idea. They found some okay. photographs and they'd come up with their own idea as the explanation of it. And then that got translated and then replicated everywhere. And the photos they were using were of the restorations that took place at the monument. Initially in 1901, when the tallest stone was straightened up, it used to lean at 30 degrees and it was straightened up in 1901. 
And then there were some more restorations carried out in the 1920s, where bits of the outer circle were brought back vertical again. But the 1950s, they actually put a whole fallen trilophon back up in place and set them in concrete. So there's lots of pictures of concrete mixers pouring concrete into holes and, you know, people with cranes and, you know, smoking And you can pipes. pull whatever assumptions yeah. you want from that, I guess, yeah. in terms of yeah. there they are building yeah. it. Yeah, so you can say truthfully that bits of Stonehenge were rebuilt by the Victorians. Certainly one stone was straightened up in the Victorian era. You can say that some bits of Stonehenge were straightened up in the sort of the 1920s. And you can say that some bits of it were re-erected and reconstructed out of what was on the site um, in the 1950s. Everything back where it ought to have been, very careful surveys were done, nothing was invented. And nothing was brought in from outside to replace stuff that was missing. But what you can't say is that it was built by the Victorians or in the 1920s or in the 1950s. We've got a, a, a drawing from the 15th century that clearly was done by somebody who saw Stonehenge because it shows the mortise and tenon joints that hold the uprights to the lintels. Uh, it's a little, little pen and ink drawing in a margin of uh, that medieval manuscript. Um, and we've got an early 1575 or so painting of Stonehenge that shows it with some of the stones that are currently on the floor on the floor as well. So we know it at least existed in 1575. It probably existed in 1300 and something. People were talking about it in 1136 and 1132 AD and the radiocarbonate so it's yeah, the big rocks have been there for four and a half thousand years and there's been something on the site for five thousand years and then you've got post holes that go back ten thousand years so it won't right. be the there's... yeah no <laughs> um you know stepping away from conspiracy theories for a second i am just interested in you know what in your mind is kind of the most exciting work that's going on about stonehenge right now whether that be in archaeology or, or history or, you know, is there something that's exciting you right now in terms of the work that's being done there? There's been a lot of recent work that's quite exciting about trying to work out exactly where the stones come from. Right, we talked about that a little bit. Yeah, there's two types of stones at Stonehenge. There's the big stuff that you look at and you go, oh look, Stonehenge. And mm -hmm. those are the stones that are local. They come from around about 15 miles away. and Going back to John Aubrey in the 17th century again, he suggested that they came from the north, from the Marlborough Downs, about sort of 20 miles away, uh, largely on the basis that lying around on the Marlborough Downs are large lumps of sarsen. It's the remains of a sandstone bed that was laid down 50 million years ago and cemented. It's very tightly cemented silica sand with quartz in it, you know, quartz grains in it. And he suggested that because there's lots there. And so that's where everybody's said, that's where the big stones come from ever since. And the little ones, the blue stones that are kind of human scale, there's none that's bigger than about eight feet in height above the ground. They weigh a maximum of sort of three to four tons each. Up until the 1920s, they were known as the foreign stones because they clearly weren't local but nobody really had an idea where they came from. And in the 1920s, somebody who'd done some surveying of the geology in the Southwest Wales Peninsula said, I think they come from the Priscelli Mountains. 
And so the bluestones come from Wales, from the Pacelli Mountains. And that's where things kind of rested for a long time. Mm -hmm. In the last decade, we've a decade and a half, we've really nailed down where the bluestones come from in the Priscelli Mountains to two or three candidate rock outcrops up on the Priscelli Hills where the geochemistry matches fantastically with the samples that we've got of the bluestones that have been taken in the past at Stonehenge and chippings that we find about in the archaeology in that right. local area. So that's great. We know for certain that their origin is over that. Sarsons are different because it's not the same unique geochemistry. But about two and a half, three years ago, um, English Heritage who look after the site were contacted by an American uh, who said, look, my dad worked for a company that did some of the work on the restoration of the fallen triathlon in the 1950s that was put mm -hmm. back upright. And in the course of that work, they were worried the stone might split when they lifted it back to the vertical. So they drilled three holes right through it and they put big bolts in to definitely clamp sure that stone it. together. Yeah. yeah. And he got to take away one of the rock cores that was caught out oh. of. Yeah. So there were three cores. I think cores I kind of remember it. reading about this somewhere. Yeah. Was, yeah. And, uh, and he, he was originally British and then he moved to the States. He lived in California, upstate New York, Florida. This the core had been on the wall of all of his office or his den, wherever he'd gone. And he was getting to the end of his life. He was feeling a little bit guilty about having it. So he said, maybe you should <laughs> they want it back. Yeah, see so, if maybe they could use it. Yeah. So the son contacted English Heritage and said, look, we've got this thing. And we went, what now? Uh, okay. Uh, would you like it back? Yes. Because this amounts to an absolutely pristine sample of the centre of one of the big sarsen stones at Stonehenge. Uh, it's already removed from the monument, which means mm -hmm. that we can take a chunk off it, we can grind it up, we can put it in all kinds of analysis to work out the trace elements that are in there, because it's 99.9% .9 quartz, but then there's little bits of other stuff that's in there. So a team, including a chap called David Nash, started sampling sarsens all over the Marlborough Downs and the south of England, looking for an exact match for this core. And what we did, what they did, well, I shouldn't say we, what they did <laughs> was they, it's kind of a we because Stonehenge Geeks are a, a, we're a, we're a community. Yeah, it's a, a community, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, nailed down uh, a match to a place called Westwoods in Marlborough which is not quite as far as the Marlborough Downs. Uh, it's only 15 miles, not 20 miles. Uh, so it's this side of the, the Kennet um, uh, River Valley. And in Westwoods, there are lots of sarsens lying around, uh, none big enough to be used at Stonehenge, but there's lots of sarsen pits where they've been extracted in oh. recent times, i.e., the 19th century, because sarsen was extracted for road building. In earlier times, because it was used for 
building material and maybe back to prehistoric times as well. And certainly this spot is the best candidate we've currently found for where the big rocks come from. And you can still walk around the West Woods now and you can see the hollows and you can see the sources oh, wow. that are still there. And just thinking about, I mean, it would have been mostly open ground at the time. Mm -hmm. Just thinking about four and a half thousand years, people being in that landscape and going, right, we'll have that big one there and we'll have that big one over there. Uh, we're just going to spend uh, two or three weeks dragging it 15 miles <laughs> and then we'll put it up in a ring. Uh, it's wonderful. You can, you can get a sense of the people who are involved uh, in some way looking at the stuff. So yeah. for me, the provenancing of the stones is some of the most exciting stuff that's happened in the last couple of years. But I started this by saying I'm all about the landscape. Mm -hmm. We know, or we think we know, where the people were living when they built Stonehenge. Yep. We found what might be the workers' village at a place called Durrington Walls. It's about two miles oh, northeast I didn't know that. That's of really interesting. It is a massive henge monument. And a henge monument is just an earthwork. It's not to do with the stones okay. in the middle. Henge is a bank and a ditch, uh, with the ditch on the inside, the bank on the outside. And this area during some walls henge is huge. It's more than 450 yards across. So it's almost a mile all the way around it. That's bank, substantial. It is substantial. It's huge. Yeah. And a remains of a Neolithic village, 10 houses definitely have been found there, which are vanishingly rare in archaeology. Um, and it's a good candidate because of the, the activity on the site ties in precisely with the period that the big rock's going up at Stonehenge. So it's probably where people were gathering to be part of this project. Okay, so that's two miles further away. And a team who've been using geophysics to survey the landscape have surveyed a huge area. And what they discovered were a massive diameter, a two kilometer, mile and a half diameter ring of huge pits centered on Durrington Walls Henge. So Durrington's in the center, you know, 200 yards out from that center, you've got the bank and ditch of the Henge. Uh, and another sort of three quarters of a mile out from the centre, you've got a sort of five to seven yard diameter by, we actually don't know how deep they go, but probably more than 10 yards deep pit. And there's wow. a couple of dozen of them in a reasonably good circle centred on Durrington. And there's some work going on that. This is an astonishing discovery because it suggests that there's an awful lot to the Durrington Walls landscape than just this Neolithic settlement. There's some yeah. monumentalism that's going on here. Yeah. They're either embellishing natural features or they're deliberately digging these things. Who knows why? Yeah. Mm. But it's, it's right there. So we've now got an area that's comparable in scale to the Stonehenge landscape, delimited by huge pits uh, centred on where the people who built it are probably living at the time. Living. So all, oh, of our, all of a sudden our horizon has 
doubled in scope uh, for this thing. That is so, fascinating. So, yeah. yeah. Those are three really interesting things that are going on at the moment. Yeah. yeah, wow. Oh, my gosh. That's, it seems like over the next, you know, few years, there's going to be, there's a, yeah. it's very fruitful soil for people starting to, uh, trying to understand and continuing to see what's out yeah. there. That's, yeah. oh, that's what, really what, exciting. But... What, what, we real, what we really need to realize is that in an era that existed before administrative boundaries and political boundaries, there weren't these sort of artificial lines that define the World Heritage Site. This is the area yeah. that's special. Yeah? yeah. The entire vista was special in one way or another. Yeah. As far as the eye could see, the hills over there are special. That river's special. That tree's special. And it's no surprise to me that people are monumentalizing bits of this because it's personally special to them or communally special to their extended family group or it's really culturally special to a huge number of people that ends up with something like Stonehenge being built. Yeah. And the great shame is that people look at the boundary and they go, oh, well, as so long as we're doing stuff outside that boundary, it doesn't matter because there's nothing special there. That's wrong. Yeah. It's yeah. everywhere. Yeah. Plenty of places to look. Yeah, I think that, you know, that brings us close to um, an hour here that we've been chatting. But before we, we say goodbye and, and thank you, is there any last, you know, comments you wanted to leave us with or, or the listeners with at all in terms of maybe why they should visit Stonehenge or something along those lines? See it at least once with more than just the idea of it's a tick in a box. Yeah. Try to engage with any of the guides who are up at the site because it's the sort of place that if you start working there and you last more than three weeks of British summer weather, which can be <laughs> 40 mile an hour horizontal rain, then it's got into you and you become passionate about it. Yeah. Right. And those people will tell you stuff that will make you look at it in a different way. Yeah. So see it at least once. Don't believe anything that you read on the internet ever. That's just advice for life. Yeah. Unless you can find some decent primary sources yep. that are out there and try and keep a critical mind, but an open mind because Stonehenge has got more secrets for us um, and it'll never give them all up, but it's a hell of a lot of fun trying. Well, thank you so much. I think, you know, and I think that applies to a lot of the, the things we've been talking about so far on the podcast that, you know, I love the critical eye, but an open mind. I think that's just really sums up how to approach a lot of, you know, conspiracy theories and historical topics. So Thank you so much for joining us today. It was really a pleasure. We'll um, link Simon's Twitter and um, all the resources he has out there for all of you listening in our description box as well so that you guys can check that out if your interest has been piqued and uh, you want to know more, which I hope that you do. Mm -hmm.